All right, well, good morning. Today, as we continue this series in David, I just want to uh, uh, remind you from a historical perspective, we are looking in this series at one of the most interesting people that has ever lived, one of the most interesting men in all of history, all of the world. And I hope along the way, as we're still on the front end of this series, you're beginning to see how much the Bible and even the Old Testament has to say about the human heart. Your heart, my heart. What makes life work and not work. Now last week, we looked at courage. A heart of courage. We looked at David's courage in his victory over Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Today, we're going to move to the dark side. And we're going to look at envy, a heart of envy, Saul's envy, Saul's jealousy, Saul's bitterness and his resentment, and the destruction envy can cause when it's left unchecked. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bible, and let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, as you're turning, let me mention that the, the reason David, who at this point is the anointed king, but Saul is the reigning king, the reason that David will spend the next 10 years running for his life from the reigning king, Saul, uh, the reason his life will be reduced to sort of uh, a desert rat status as he hides and flees and runs. And by the way, all of the, you talk about injustice. I mean, we struggle with personal injustice. David has just defeated Goliath, rescuing Israel. And now he will spend the next 10 years running in the Judean wilderness, in, in the desert. And the reason that's the case, and the reason the reigning king Saul's life will self-destruct and will implode, is because of this one word, envy. Envy. You see, envy poisons its objects, but it also poisons its possessor. Now, for those of you like David who have been the objects of envy, uh, you've experienced the gnarly tip of the spear, I want to encourage you, I want to comfort you, because I want you to understand what's going on here from a theological perspective. Maybe for you, it's been a co-worker that's attacked you. Or maybe you've been left out. Or, or maybe it's a, a brother, a sister, a sibling, somebody in your own family that, that you felt has been jealous of you, has rejected you, has made life in your family uh, difficult for you. Or maybe it's a friend that's gone hostile. I want you to understand that God uses the evil of Saul's envy for good in David's life. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. This 10-year period for David will really be hell on earth. And yet this period will give birth to some of David's most magnificent, most worshipful, most passionate psalms. Everything Saul will do to harm David will lead to David's advancement. And just like most of us, David won't even know it's happening. 
He won't even know what God is up to. So one of the takeaways for us, and I say this on the front end because I'm going to go a little differently, is that what we see here is that God works all things together for good in the life of David in spite of what he's going through. So today, as we talk about envy, I want to look at what it is, I want to look at how it progresses, and then I want to look at the cure. Let's begin reading in chapter 18 and verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that is the giant Goliath, the women from Israel came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. Now what we have is a victory celebration, a ticker tape parade, ticker tape parade. As they danced, they sang, Saul is slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a a jealous eye on David. Envy causes you to look at people differently. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying, some translate this, raving in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Now, Saul had a spear in his hand. Now, when Saul, I mean, get a picture of this. Saul's sitting in, in his palace, and he's got a spear in his hand. It's not unlike somebody sitting in their house with a, a gun in their hand. And you know when that's taking place, they're not having a very good day, right? So uh, something's really off here. Saul's sitting there with a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, uh, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. It happened twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Now skip down to verse 20. Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be, notice, snared to him. And so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think this is a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David... He was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Now you thought scalps were bad. Just saying. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael in marriage. 
when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became even, now notice, more afraid. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success. And the rest of Saul's officers, then the rest of Saul's officers and his name, David's, became well known. Now look at verse 1 at chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So let's start with what envy is. Let's look at the the nature of envy to begin with. And go back to verse 8. Look closely at verse 8. I love the way New York City Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Envy in light of verse 8 is he but me. He but me. Saul can't just say he. He can't just say, I am so proud of David Man, I just love the way God has used David to deliver us from the Philistines. Saul makes it about himself. It's he but me. It's she but me. It's they but me. Now today, we talk about house envy. We talk about, I don't know, clothes envy, vacation envy. We envy or begrudge people's gifts or talents. Often when we're denied something, people, if you live in Texas, talk about truck envy. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago with a college student. He goes to college in West Texas, and he had this really cool belt on. And as he kind of turned in our conversation, I noticed in the built into his belt, he had a pocket in the back for a knife. I mean, a big knife. Now, he's in school in West Texas, okay? I went to school in Texas. And I said to him, Jeffers, um, what's the deal with this belt knife? And he said, oh, I always carry this, this knife because you never know when you're going to need to skin something. <laughs> uh, so you got knife envy going on in Texas. In six or seven weeks, you know what we're going to struggle with in Chicago? We're going to struggle with weather envy. It's coming and we're going to struggle with it for a couple of months. But I'm not talking about those low-end, fairly innocuous uh, kind of stuff. Envy here in chapter 18 and everywhere else in the Bible is much more sinister. It's the feeling of ill will. Because you've been bypassed, you've been overlooked, you you didn't get it or, or, or whatever. Now, coveting is wanting what another person has. Envy is resenting it because you don't have it and you don't think they deserve it. Envy is also being frustrated with what you have because others have more, they have newer, they have better. So Saul hears the women singing in this. uh, The irony is this is a victory celebration. He's the king. He should have been overflowing with joy. And he hears the women singing, well, David has his uh, 10,000s and then Saul shifts, but me. I have my thousands. So envy is being able, unable rather, to enjoy another's ten thousands because of comparison. And it's being unable to enjoy your thousand 
because of resentment. Envy is always comparing. It's making everything about you. Because of the, at the root of envy is pride, a fragile ego. And envy in the Bible is this pathological mix of self-centeredness, self-pity, pride, fragile ego, resentment, jealousy, comparison, and all of that. It's seeing one another's victory, one another's honor, one another's uh, 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 achievement. What, what, what somebody else is doing and opposing it. You don't like it. Because envy makes everything about you. So, for example, this is the young mother who resents the other young mother because her children are so well-behaved. This is a co-worker uh, uh, that badmouths uh, the other co-worker who got his promotion. Telling everybody you'll listen to him in the office, man, the morons didn't see what I see. This is the student who, who, who rips other students, who is really negative about others, not because she enjoys it, but because it's the only way she can feel better about herself. Envy is a thief. It steals your joy. You stew in the juices of resentment because they are and you're not. He but me, she but me, they but me. It's all about you. And so it makes you unable to enjoy what others enjoy. Uh, the, the new baby, the, the, the wedding, the honor, uh, because you don't have the same. And that's comparison. And it, it, it makes you unable to enjoy your life, your situation, uh, your set of circumstances, uh, uh, you, uh, your job, your, your whatever. Because others have more. Or have this or have that. And you don't. And that's resentment. As Proverbs 14.30 says, envy rots the bones. It steals your joy. Envy makes you miserable. And frankly, let me just say this. We're city folk. The bigger the city, the bigger the population area, the more affluent the suburbs, the faster the pace of life. I want to suggest to you the bigger the problem this is because the simple things, the normal things, well, they're just not good enough because you're constantly comparing Now, let's go a little further here. Go back to verse 8 and look at the last sentence of verse 8. Saul thinks, um, now, uh, what uh, can David now get but the kingdom? In other words, in that um, statement, it seems like a light has gone on for Saul. And Saul suddenly recognizes that the person the women are thinking about is the same person that Samuel mentioned back in chapter 15 when he announced that Saul was losing the kingdom and said it's going to be giving to a neighbor. And the women are singing this and all of a sudden Saul realizes that neighbor is David. That David's going to become the king. 
And from this moment on, everything, everything changes in Saul's attitude towards David. And it's not David's issue, it's Saul's issue. That's the way envy works. And so uh, any affection, any appreciation that David or that Saul might have for David, I mean, he just rescued the entire Israeli military, is gone, and it's replaced by envy, resentment, jealousy, hatred, bitterness. Who wants to live that way? But this is a problem for all of us. Look at what our Lord says in Mark chapter 7. Look at these pointed verses. Jesus is speaking what comes out of a man, what comes out of a woman, what comes out of a student is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, and there it is, envy. Envy. In other words, what Jesus Christ is saying, all of us struggle with envy. All of us. It's part of the fall. It's part of the curse. So the question isn't whether or not we struggle with envy. The question is, to what extent? And are we managing it? I mean, envy, after all, is why Satan fell from heaven. It's why the universe was ruined. Because Satan couldn't be number two. Envy is why Cain killed Abel. It's why Joseph's brothers sold Joseph, young Joseph, into slavery. When we come to the New Testament, we are explicitly told that envy is why the Jews killed Jesus. And by the time we get to the church at Corinth, we see one of the main reasons the church at Corinth is in such a mess is because of envy. The Bible has a lot to say about envy. It's part of the fall. Envy is real. Envy is a big deal, but envy is elusive. It operates in the shadows, in secret. It's kind of like a terrorist cell, hiding until it's ready to strike. And so as a result, most of us aren't in touch with our problem with envy. We tend to minimize it. And if you're in a prayer group or you've got some people in a small group or an accountability group, you don't hear many people say, hey man, I'm really struggling with envy. Man, I feel like I was shafted about this. And what's happened is it's poisoning me. But I want to tell you there are two telltale signs. Number one is you are unable to enjoy what others enjoy because of comparison. And you are unable, sign number two, you are unable to enjoy what you have, your situation, because of resentment. Now look with me at Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Romans chapter 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn, weep with those who mourn. Now that is what love does. That's what love does. Envy 
is the antithesis. Envy rejoices with those who mourn and mourns with those who rejoice because envy is a sin against love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the love chapter. Love does not envy. Because envy makes everything about you. You don't want to live that way. And, and left unchecked, what happens is over time you, you justify it by blaming others or, 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 or blaming God. You know, this is an injustice. Uh, I, 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 I've been wrong. And by the way, when, when you find yourself thinking, I don't deserve this, be careful, envy is just around the corner. Envy means that you can't say he or she or they. You have to add, but me. Now let's go on. This chapter is just, I think, so interesting, so fascinating, because I want you to see the progression of envy in Saul's life. What we've read is that Saul repeatedly, in a variety of different ways, attempts to kill David. Take David out, you know, send him out to command the forces. The Philistines will take care of him. And then we come to this um, very interesting section on his marriage to Michael. Now what I want you to understand is at this point, Saul's envy of David is covert. It's secret. And so Michael wants to marry David and Saul sees this as an opportunity to lay a trap. The word in verse 21 is snare. Now, now how is it a snare? Well, it's a snare because uh, Saul knows David is poor. He can't pay any sort of bridal price. Can't roll up with a big car or something like that. Buy a house. So Saul says, well, I, I, I want 100 Philistines. And David goes and gets 200 <laughs> But in verse 25, if you look at verse 25, we're told that Saul's intent there was to have David killed. Now, I have three daughters, okay? I, uh, uh, we're in a stepfamily. I have two stepdaughters. We have a lot of daughters in our family. That's a wonderful thing. I cannot, I, I, I cannot even begin to comprehend one of them coming and saying, hey, I found this guy, I love this guy, and me thinking, oh, that's great, now I can kill him. Now that may come, I mean, Saul is really sick here, right? I mean, really, really sick. But it's right here, it's all in the shadows, it's a, it's a secret. Now why? Because Saul knows how popular David is. Saul knows how much the people love David. So Saul hides his attempts on David's life. Not wanting the people to turn against him. But in just one chapter, by the time we move from chapter 18 to chapter 19, the people don't matter anymore. And Saul is willing to jeopardize the very thing that he wants the most, the approval, the respect of people. 
to keep what he thinks he can't live without, the throne. This text is 3,000 years old, but it's a vivid description of addiction, of idolatry, of the depths of the pathology of the, the human heart, the evil resident in the human heart, because addiction is voluntary slavery. As I said, it's idolatry. It's a worship disorder. It's personal bondage to something you choose other than God. Because you think it promises pleasure, but the reality is it delivers misery. Because idols always, always disappoint. Saul's addiction is revealed in his willingness to oppose God and risk everything in order to protect his throne, in order to protect his idol. Earlier this week, I talked to a, a recovering, recovered cocaine addict. And he said, what happened is one day I got up and I looked in the mirror, man. And I hated what I'd become. I hated what I was doing to everyone. That's bondage. It was cocaine. Saul's cocaine is a little different, but it's cocaine. You see, envy starts as self-pity. It leads to jealousy. It leads to resentment. Man, you begin to not like these people. You want to check out. But left unchecked, it becomes a slavery, a bondage. And you lose touch with reality. You lose the ability to love, love your enemies. And you lose your joy. It's the result of making something or someone more important than God. And if it's, let's say, your kids or... Um, uh, your friends, what happens is you press, you control, you squeeze, uh, you push, and you drive away the very thing that matters the most to you. If it's your job, if it's a, 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 a boyfriend, uh, you will compromise anything and everything. To keep your idol. And you'll drive people away in the process. And so this morning, based on what we see here in God's word, I want to encourage you to look under your hood. To get alone with God, to, to, to think about this, to open your eyes. Saul started out well, good guy. But he faces some disappointment, some stress, and he ends up committing suicide because he wouldn't throttle the issues of his heart. There's a progression to sin. Satan is not out to coddle you. Man, he is out to destroy you. That's what he does with Saul. Guard your heart. Now, let's go on. Let's look at what uh, the word says about the cure or the antidote or, or, or how we get delivered from our envy. Now, go back to the beginning of chapter 18. What we have is a remarkable little short story 
about Saul's son, Jonathan. And what we discover is that chapter 18 is really the record of two family members. Saul, the father, the king, Jonathan, the son, the prince, looking at the same person, the same situation, David, radically differently. Even though David represents a threat to both. You could argue David represents a bigger threat to Jonathan because Jonathan hasn't even had the chance to be the king yet. So let's pick it up. Let's read in verse 1 of chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing, gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. There seems to be no human reason, no human reason why the throne couldn't have been passed to Jonathan. Jonathan was just as spiritual as David. He was just as courageous, uh, just as valiant a warrior as David. Some have speculated that the only reason that Jonathan didn't go after Goliath in the previous chapter is because Saul, his father, the king, would have never let him. Yet where Saul opposes what God is doing in David, Jonathan embraces it even though it will cost him everything. So Jonathan takes off his robe, gives it to David. To take off your robe as the crown prince is to surrender your reign. He gives David his sword, his um, bow, his belt. And he's stating his submission to David. He is consciously, intentionally reversing roles with David. Because Jonathan knows that David is God's anointed. He gets it. And he knows that his father, his family are going to decrease going to be rejected. They're going to lose power. They're going to lose status. They're going to lose wealth. And Jonathan, well, Jonathan is okay. The late Dr. Chris Mitchell uh, was speaking one time here at Wheaton Bible Church on this subject, uh, talking about Jonathan. And he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, in the kingdom of God, there is no room for greatness because it's been exhausted in Jesus Christ. But there's always room for humility, for submitting to God, even though you don't get your way, even though others are jumping ahead, is submitting to God regardless of the cost. And that is Jonathan. Jonathan is thinking, how can I glorify God by making somebody else successful? How in the world can I glorify God by becoming a number two or a number three or a number 30? It doesn't matter. It's humility. Now, next week, Hannibal is going to talk about the friendship between Jonathan and David. But it wasn't friendship that caused Jonathan to do this. It was something deeper. It was faith. Faith in God's sovereign plan for Israel. Faith in God's sovereign plan for Saul. 
for Jonathan himself, for David. It, it, it was a humble, submissive confidence in, in God because Jonathan understands that salvation for Israel is now going to come not through Saul and his family, but through the Goliath slayer. And he knows if he wants to participate fully in God's plan, he's got to get out of the way. And what's amazing is Jonathan does. So the antidote to, you, uh, to envy then is humility rooted in faith. It's a contentment with your own circumstances, even if you feel uh, they've gone sour, your own assignment because of confidence in God. It's Jonathan. The antidote, the, the way out is Jonathan. But actually, there's more. Because ultimately, the way out of envy, this evil in our hearts, isn't looking to Jonathan. It's looking to Jesus. Are you ready for this? Jonathan pictures Jesus. When Jonathan takes off his robe, he pictures Jesus taking off his robe, leaving his throne in heaven and becoming a man in order to die in our place for our sins. Jonathan gives up his sword. Jesus gave up his, only it was used against him. It cost him his life. Because Jesus knew that the only way you and I could share in his throne would be if he gave it up. That he had to give up his throne that we could reign with him. You see, envy always opposes he complains and whines. It does a variety of different things. It always uh, opposes a, another's ad, advance. You're, you're convinced uh, that they don't deserve it. And there's other things going on. Jesus Christ is the opposite of envy. Because Jesus loves to see people get what they don't deserve. Envy hates it. Jesus loves it. He died for it. It's called grace. What is grace? Grace is one way love. It's Jesus giving up what he deserved in order to give us what we don't deserve. So when you are tempted to envy, lock on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Tell yourself, uh, I don't deserve anything, yet Jesus Christ has given me everything. And my first 10 seconds in the presence of God will wipe out thousands of lifetimes of pain and agony and loss. And I, and I want to say to you this morning, and I say this in love, please, I'm saying this in love, stop the pity party. It poisons you. 
It makes you all about you. And, and if you understand that you deserve nothing, that grace, God's grace in Jesus Christ is one-way love, and that in Jesus Christ you are a child of the King, uh, destined for unending, infinite splendor and joy, then instead of envying, you'll be loving. Instead of complaining, you'll extend one-way love, grace, because it's been extended to you. And so like Jonathan, like Jesus, you've got to give up the throne. You've got to get off it. And you've got to let Jesus Christ be first. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we marvel. We marvel at how insightful these Old Testament passages really are. And I pray, God, that you would speak to me, that you would speak to us, that we might be more like you. And I thank you that we can now continue to worship by giving to you, by giving to you from what you have so richly and graciously and freely given to us. It's all yours, God. Thank you for this offering, this act of worship. And as, as we sing, we ask that you would speak to us. For Jesus' sake, amen.